Oh, it's the breath of the vocal, the vocal flow. Oh, it's the breath of the vocal flow. Oh, it's the breath Welcome to this very important episode of Vocalscope, where we consider the dangers of live singing and music making in the COVID era. I talked to Declan Costello about his recent research into aerosols, and we're not talking about deodorants. Following some very high-profile cases as the COVID pandemic took hold, which highlighted the potential risk of activities such as singing causing accelerated transmission of COVID-19, singing swiftly became a prohibited activity. A choir in Scarget County, Washington State in the US, saw one infected member pass on the virus to 52 of its 61 members and tragically two people died. Almost overnight, singing in churches, choirs, Broadway and West End productions stopped. The impact of all this on the performing arts industry has been, for the most part, nothing short of devastating. At a time when we have needed the very therapy that music and singing is in our lives, just when we would have really benefited from being able to come together as artistic and creative music-making communities, has been the very time we have been prohibited from the vital shared experiences that make challenging times like this more bearable. Today, we'll be hearing about a study that has sought to find some answers to the question that resounds from all parties. When will we be able to sing again? But before we hear about it, let's understand some of the rationale behind why singing might be so dangerous. And for that, we need to look at droplets and aerosol. So when we cough, sing, speak and breathe, we emit a range of droplets and aerosol. Droplets are large particles, bigger than the diameter of a human hair, they are susceptible to gravity and will fall in front of you quite quickly between one to two metres, which is why we have physical social distancing guidelines to try to minimise exposure and to try to safeguard against transmission of the virus through exposure to these large droplets. And then we have aerosol, which are much smaller particles, smaller than the diameter of a human hair, typically five micrometers in diameter. And because aerosol particulates are smaller in mass, they don't fall out of the air very quickly and they can actually float very easily. They can remain airborne on air currents, circulating for several hours, which is why we have been told to meet others outside and why we are being encouraged to ventilate spaces well to encourage these small particles to pass through and out of the spaces we live and work in. If you want to see these small aerosol particles for yourself, there is a fascinating yet disturbing video of the research carried out by NHK in Japan with a group of researchers where they filmed the activity of aerosol using technology that lights up the aerosol, enabling us to witness its behaviour and 
it clearly demonstrates the aerosol that is created and the hugely concerning potential for one simple cough to dispel aerosol that subsequently hangs in the atmosphere for several hours. And I will leave a link to this video in the show notes. In the wake of COVID-19, aerosols have increasingly become the focus of much debate because while they could transport the virus and infect individuals, there is still more we need to know about how important aerosols are to the spread of COVID-19. And even the World Health Organization has been asked by the scientific community to reassess its guidance on the airborne transmission of the virus. And some important questions are being asked. Is aerosol capable of containing the live infectious SARS-CoV-2 virus? What we do know is that if we sample the air, and this has been done in, in healthcare settings, we can detect what is known as the RNA signature. Now, this is like the fingerprint of the virus. And this tells us it has existed in the airborne phase. But can the infection remain alive in the aerosol particulates long enough to infect someone? And even if the virus can stay alive in the aerosol, is the amount of virus in those tiny particles enough to infect us? And do we know how much viral load we need to take on board to become infected? We know it's highly infectious, but we don't know the answer to that question. Proportionately, how much of these aerosol and droplets do we produce when we are singing or playing a wind or brass instrument, as opposed to when we are simply speaking. We didn't know the answer to this last question until Jonathan Reed, Professor of Physical Chemistry at Bristol University, who specialises in aerosol science and is part of the university's Uncover team, which is responsible for the COVID-19 emergency response, and Declan Costello, who is my guest today, mounted their investigation. So joining me today is Declan Costello, who is an ear, nose and throat surgeon at Wexham Park Hospital, and he specialises in voice disorders. But you're also a counter-tenor turned tenor, aren't you, Declan? I am, that's right, yes. As an undergraduate, I studied music at St John's Cambridge, and I was um, a counter-tenor, an alto there, and sang as an alto for a number of years, but in recent years, my, my falsetto has abandoned me and I'm now, uh, I'm now a tenor. So you have very recently undertaken an important experiment, collating your findings just in the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's important to acknowledge that the results are yet to be peer-reviewed, but nevertheless, the results have been weighted with bated breath haven't they from the voice community and it would be terrific if you could just firstly share the details of how this experiment took place and what it was that you were testing. Yeah absolutely so at the outset of the pandemic uh, there were clusters of Covid centred around choirs and there was a concern that maybe it was the, the singing itself or maybe other activities or maybe the ventilation of the rooms that was causing concentration of the air or, or whatever that was perhaps um, uh, contributing to these clusters occurring. 
and we wanted to assess the amount of aerosol that was being produced by singers and by wind instrumentalists because there was uh, because of the clusters there was a, a basically a lockdown on singing from a very early stage and we needed to provide some science as to whether this lockdown was justified or whether we could afford to lift it so quite rapidly, we assembled a team, including the aerosol team from Bristol University, and we wanted to quantify the amount of aerosol in a variety of different vocal activities, including singing, speaking, shouting, coughing, whispering, uh, and so on, really to give us some objective information as to whether we are producing vastly more aerosol when we are singing compared to when we're speaking or shouting. And that's really where it all started. Fantastic. And what were the findings that your study has, has shown us? And, and how do you feel that might impact our, our future practice or not? You know, is, is it yet safe to uh, return to, to, to singing together in, in person? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the findings, uh, in short, have demonstrated, and as you say, it's important to say that this is a study that has been uh, released prior to peer review. So there is a chance that uh, it will be revised and amended according to whatever uh, I, reviewers of the article say. But the, the headline um, uh, findings were that as you get louder with your voice, whether you are uh, speaking or singing, you produce vastly more aerosol at loud volumes compared to quiet volumes. And that's by a factor of about 20 or 30 from the quietest phonation to the loudest phonation. And that's true of singing and speaking. And then comparing singing to speaking, um, we did find that there was more aerosol produced in singing than in speaking, but it was not anything like as big an effect as the change that you see with increasing volume. So there's more produced by singing than speaking, but not, but, but not a hugely significant amount more. It was significantly more, but not a vast amount more. So what you're saying there is actually we need to, if we're going to sing, we need to sing quietly, or is it that, uh, you know, speaking having a large group of people using their voices in a space might be just as dangerous as singing quietly. It's difficult to, to, to know how we make sense of that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and trying to unpick the practical implications of this uh, is, as you say, is really difficult. I mean, the implication is that if you've got a big group of people uh, who are in the same space, who are shouting at each other. I mean, think of a pub or a bar or a restaurant or a canteen. Then that is a situation where quite a lot of aerosol is going to be generated, probably in a roughly equivalent amount to the same number of people who are singing at the same volume in that space. Um, but of course, it's not just about telling people that they should be singing quietly, because that's not an option. I mean, if you've got a piece that starts to pianissimo and goes to a fortissimo towards the end, then, then you can't just take out the dynamics. Mm. Um, now, there are situations in which you could uh, encourage people to use their voices less noisily. And, and in some situations, you could see amplification being quite a helpful way around that. But actually, for the majority of, uh, of singing, you require a variety of dynamics to give the music interest. Uh, so just telling people to sing quietly really isn't an option. So you need then to think about other mitigating factors. And the other mitigating factors would be things like the ventilation, the size of the room, the number of people in the room, uh, 
um, and uh, and the duration with which they're singing as well, because all of those other things will have an influence. So we're not necessarily saying you can't sing loud. We're just saying that actually, if you anticipate that this is going to be a piece where there's going to be a lot of loud singing, you're going to need to put in some other mitigating factors. Certainly. And do we yet have the evidence to show that we can identify or isolate a sample, an infectious SARS-CoV-2 virus sample? Um, And have we been able to prove that the virus has been able to stay alive in the aerosol long enough to infect? And do we understand how much of that dose we would need to infect us? Yeah, I mean, those are all huge questions. And I think the the simple answer is that we don't know the definitive answers to those. There is increasing evidence that uh, aerosol, the very small particles that come out of people's mouths are capable of infecting. But you're right. I mean, what dose is relevant as far as uh, infectivity is concerned? How big do the particles have to be to be able to actually hold an infective virus? We don't know. And that hasn't been part of the study that we've been doing. I mean, I think, you know, at the outset, uh, we were um, we were tasked with trying to find out how much uh, aerosol is generated. There are other teams working on the infectivity and on uh, the, the, uh, the, the vor- voraciousness, if you like, of the virus in, in regards to the uh, aerosolization. Um, but, you know, we from, from the outset, when the public health doctors shut down singing, we felt that we were going to need to provide some objective data so that they could help, so we could help them to make some decisions about uh, whether and when they could open up singing again. Talk to us about the importance of ventilation in spaces, because that's one of the guidelines which is probably more important now that we know what we know. Yeah, that's right. I mean, ventilation is going to be absolutely critical, I suspect, as we go ahead uh, into the coming months and years. Um, And we know that the aerosols, which are the tiny sub five micrometer particles that hang around in the air, the only way you can get rid of those is by ventilating them away. Now, you can either have mechanical ventilation or air purification systems, or in very simple terms, you can open the door and, and a window and allow a through draft Um, But somehow or other, ventilation is going to uh, be a very important part of what we do uh, in the coming uh, in the coming future. Yeah. The initial paper was released on Friday, and it's true to say that it was received with a wide range of responses and reactions by the voice community. As a community of choir leaders, singers, singing teachers and voice practitioners, we're we're all experiencing a very high level of concern and frustration and anxiety around the lack of the extensive research or evidence to give us a complete understanding of what we deeply desire to have on this issue, which so hugely affects us. Because this virus is preventing our practice and our training, our organisations and businesses, the performing arts industry is is in turmoil, isn't it? It's impeding our, our lives, but it's foolish of us to expect that one research experiment might be able to answer all the questions we want to have answered. In terms of uh, our expectations of, of what this particular study might have um, have answered, uh, I think it must have been quite difficult for you to 
feel that the responses were sort of justified because some people were sort of saying, you know, well, this isn't enough information for me to be able to, you know, do my risk assessments and open my choirs again. And But actually, it couldn't possibly do that, could it? No, that's right. I mean, no one research study is going to be able to provide all the answers um, on all occasions. And actually, do you know, I think we are not, we are never going to be in a situation where we have absolutely all the information at our fingertips in such a way that we can make a complete and total risk assessment uh, and have uh, absolutely every last bit of information. We are all, I think we're in an era now where we have to accept the fact that there is going to be risk in whatever we do, whether we sing, whether we go to the pub, whether we go to the supermarket to buy our groceries, that there is a degree of risk in everything we're going to be doing. And uh, no, you're right. One single research study isn't going to provide that. But we, um, I've seen the, the, the sort of frustrations from people about uh, the, the fact that this doesn't give as complete a picture as, as people would have wished. You know, it's worth bearing in mind that the study was done literally in the space of eight weeks. I mean, this is the kind of thing that would normally take months or years. And, and a number of us were doing the study in our in our spare time so we a few of us have clinical jobs as well and we were we were keeping those afloat at the same time as doing this so no single study is going to give us all of the information every study that comes out is going to give us another brick in the wall in terms of being able to make our risk assessments based on a number of different factors and this helps us and people will then as the as the knowledge base and as the evidence base builds people will be able to make better informed decisions and of course, based partly on our research, the government changed its guidelines about the uh, the parameters for singing and for wind and brass playing and, and dramatically reduced the uh, social distancing requirements for singers and wind and brass players, which was extremely welcome. So we are moving in the direction of being able to get back to performing, but it's it's a slow process. I absolutely accept that. Uh, and, and we're not gonna have all the answers and you could, you know, in a sense, when, it, when a study comes out uh, that looks at a, a question, you can't shoot the messenger if it doesn't give you the questions it wasn't asking. You, you have to just wait for other studies to come through and provide um, answers in different domains. Absolutely. And we are incredibly grateful to you, Declan, and to Jonathan Reed and Chris Orton, Natalie Watson and the rest of the team. And I know that scores of our voice community will echo that. Personally, I think that you deserve a knighthood for what you have given in in service to to, to voice and performing arts because it's such an important aspect of the information that we need so thank you so much I like to ask all of my guests what their favorite voice is if you could only be in the presence safely obviously of just one sound of one voice whose voice would it be my goodness that's such a difficult question and I think I would answer that by saying in in the current generation of singers um I there is a tenor called Samuel Bowden Sam Bowden who sings absolutely beautifully uh there's uh, some recent discs of his singing uh, Charpentier and singing various other things which is absolutely wonderful unlike me he is a very high tenor um, a sort of haute contra or, or a proper contra tenor, but he's not a falsettist. So he's one of a generation, one of a breed of tenors who sings very, very high, but he's got a beautifully uh, lyrical voice. Um, oh, other voices I love. Yes, Dean Davis sings absolutely beautifully. Um, uh, 
Carolyn Sampson. I don't know. It's it's very difficult to to choose one, isn't it? If you know, if you if you talk to me yesterday, as I was listening to Sam Bowden in the car, then it would be him, I suspect. And is there a specific song that you think our listeners should listen to of Sam Bowden's? There is a disc that he released a couple of years ago of uh, Blow. Uh, John Blow's music and that is absolutely brilliant and he just kind of effortlessly sails up into the ether so yeah if you can check out Sam Bowden uh, and his Blow disc I I would go for that. Well that sounds wonderful. Declan what does the future look like for you in terms of future research projects or are you looking at a return to your clinical duties and caring for people's poorly voices? Are you due a holiday? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm, I mean, I've been doing clinical duties all throughout this period anyway, and things are getting a bit busier now that services are beginning to open up a bit more. And as I chat to you now, I'm, I'm in my clinic room between morning and afternoon clinics. So I, I, that, that is definitely ramping up. In terms of the future research, we've, when we were collecting the data um, a few weeks ago, uh, we, were, we were looking at the professional singers. We also looked at a number of different wind and brass instruments, and that data is there, but it needs to be analysed. The amount of data crunching that has to go into these studies is absolutely huge. And we need to, uh, having having looked at initially at this singing data for professionals, we now need to look at the wind and brass. Um, so that's our next project. And then there's a whole raft of things that one needs to do beyond that. I mean, thinking about the ventilation for a minute, there are some very complex mathematical models that can be applied. It's called computational fluid dynamic modeling. And it's they're mathematical models that allow you to predict flows of air according to how many people are there, how much they're singing, how long they're singing, the size of the room, the, the position of the doors and windows and so on. So that would be the next phase of research, um, I think, looking into the, uh, into the coming months. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you've certainly got your work cut out for you and thank you so much again for uh, delivering such an important study and a, a piece of the puzzle not at all it's a pleasure it's lovely to chat to you thank you for the invitation Juliet. and to you thank you so there we have it not all the answers but a step closer we now know there is a steep rise in aerosol production with an increase in the loudness of singing and speaking rising by as much as a factor of 20 to 30. Singing does not produce very substantially more aerosol than speaking at a similar volume. At the end of last week and over the weekend, media headlines misleadingly reported that singing is no more dangerous than speaking. Or isn't it that speaking is just as dangerous as singing? And isn't it also that speaking loudly is just as dangerous as singing loudly? There were no significant differences in aerosol production between genders, and there were no significant differences found in aerosol production among different genres, and they looked at choral, musical theatre, opera, jazz, gospel, rock and pop. But how do we adequately risk assess our private practices, our choirs, our conservatoires and training academies, our theatres, and come to a conclusion that convinces us we can be safe. We can't. We can socially distance, we can ventilate, we can minimise the length of rehearsals, the amount of people in them, and where possible, 
the volume, but that raises all sorts of viability, creativity and vocal safety issues. Do we return to the theatre and concerts, sit alone and not cheer? Do we return to our rehearsal studios for a miserably chilly time as we throw open every window and door to increase the rate of air exchange? There are many research questions still to be answered and many practical dilemmas to soul-search in the meanwhile. Until next time. Oh, one, two, three. Oh, it's the breath, the Oh, it's the breath, the 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 the